This is an episode of the VET podcast that should have been easy to record, but no, no, no. What with false starts, connection issues, re-records, and COVID infection, there were, let's say, a few issues. Anyway, we got there in the end. In this episode of the VET podcast, I chat with Dr. Kelly Deal from the Morris Animal Foundation about some of their latest studies. Going across a border because it could make us look like drug dealers, like we're funding drug studies. Uh, that was one of the issues we had. I am veterinarian Brian Greger, and you are listening to The Vet Podcast. Kelly, how are you? Go. I'm, I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to have you back again. Before we go any further... Can I just get you to give a quick overview again of the Morris Animal Foundation? We've been around 75 years. We're celebrating our 75th anniversary this year, and we fund animal health projects around the world. We fund studies focused on dogs, cats, wildlife, and equids, and we've done a few llamas and alpacas as well. So what is new and exciting in the world of the Morris Animal Foundation? We have a couple interesting projects, some of which are a little different for us. We're actually finally dipping our toe in the CBD waters, as it were. Um, as you can imagine, the uh, the um, funding landscape has been a little weird for us because of sort of the spotty approval right in the United States about marijuana and uh, CBD products. But we're actually funding a new study at the University of Saskatchewan. And they're looking at CBD in dogs who are post-operative TPLO surgery. So we've got a lot of acronyms in here at the moment, Kelly. CBD, TPLO. Okay, so TPLO is tibial plateau leveling osteotomy that is used for dogs who have ruptured cranial cruciate ligaments and typically done, obviously, in large breed dogs. Uh, CBD is cannabidiol, which is the non-psychoactive component of marijuana and has been purported to have, you know, anti-inflammatory effects, pain modification effects. It's also been used to control epilepsy in dogs and people. And there's some studies that support its use. There's one out of Colorado State University that is quite compelling. But the problem that we are facing, at least in the United States, is really having a good control trial of CBD. There's a lot of anecdotal information out there. There's just not a lot of really hard data on its use in, in this particular case for pain management. So can you talk us through what they are doing? So these are dogs that are getting sort of a standard pain, post-op pain regime, but they're adding in CBD oil. It's a double-blinded study, so it's awesome, right? It, the owners are blinded as to whether their dog's getting placebo or CBD, as are the veterinarians at the hospital, the, the veterinary school, who are reevaluating these patients. And they're coming in two weeks after their surgery, but they're having a little bit longer follow-up as well. And what the group there is trying really hard to get at is some kind of objective measure, right, of CBD's efficacy. The group's done quite a bit of work on looking at the pharmacokinetics 
kinetics. So they've done work in beagles on the pharmacokinetics. So they feel good about the dosing. And they're also got a good source where they know that this stuff is pure, right? If it says a certain milligram amount that they know it is correct. And they're very, very interested in this. Uh, CBD oil, I don't know what it costs there in New Zealand, but it can be really pricey here in the United States and in Canada. And of course, TBLO is usually a big dog surgery, right? So it can run into quite a bit of money. And so there's a financial aspect to this study as well, which is if people are going to use this, you really want to know if it's going to work in this particular situation or not. So why was the TPLO surgery chosen then ahead of other surgeries? The team that chose it, I think partly was because it's a surgery, to be frank, they do a lot at University of Saskatchewan. So they see a number of cases and they knew they could probably recruit adequate, adequate numbers. It's also a surgery that has a fairly standard post-operative pain regime that they already follow. So that that's kind of set. So it's not really up to the, there's some clinician variation, but they were able to get the clinicians to agree to that. And also it's a surgery that's really associated with quite a bit of discovered after surgery. And I think that was, those were the main driving factors behind that. It's, it's a good question. There are a number of other surgeries, I think, that could be tested. But I think that orthopedic uh, also lends itself because it's a fairly standard protocol in how the surgery is conducted. How far through the trial are they? They haven't recruited halfway yet. They're um, about four months into it. However, they're doing quite well and would expect to complete enrollment by the fall and get everybody through by the beginning of next year. So we're hopeful within the next year or so, we'll have a publication out on this study. You have alluded to it already, Kelly. I think the term you used was patchy, that the registration of CBD for veterinary use in the United States is patchy. Does studies like this help with getting some sort of a a uniform registration for CBD, particularly in the United States? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will push the needle. The reality is the needle is being pushed here through lots of folks who are now legalizing marijuana in their states. The other thing that got tricky, to be honest, with this particular project, it's been two years in the making. And some of it had to do with our funding going across a border because it could make us look like drug dealers, like we're funding, right, drug studies. Uh, That was one of the issues we had. And um, it was lucky we were able to do Canada because those products are now legal all over Canada. So they were able to order it and get it in. But a few years ago, we had abandoned a study that was going to be conducted out of Auburn University. If people ever have done Merton Booth, she's a really famous uh, pharmacologist, has been around for a long time. And Dawn wanted to do a CBD study at Auburn, which is in Alabama, but wanted to get her medication from a compounding pharmacy in Texas and get funding from Morris Animal Foundation in Colorado. And we could not get through the red tape on it. We just could not um, it looked again like we were drug dealing and drugs were crossing borders and uh, state borders. Uh, I'm hoping that a study like this will really help demonstrate, especially if it's successful in demonstrating efficacy, will be a powerful argument 
to maybe ease up restrictions in the United States. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of the study. What else have you got on the books, Kelly? Um, We have another study that's a little different for us. This is going to be for cats. Many years ago, we funded some work that on confirmation of shelter caging for cats to look at ways to decrease stress, which of course we all know helps decrease some of the infectious diseases and problems we see in cats, namely uh, respiratory infections, right? We know they're stress-related. And we did some of that work, which resulted in, if you've seen the cages that have tubes between them and sometimes a confirmation where they're more upright, those are really successful in helping decrease stress. And we were approached by one of our local shelters where they wanted to look at do a study looking at something called a cat den, right? Basically, it's just a fancy tube. There is a company that makes these things called cat dens, but you get the idea, right? A hiding place, essentially. And we have partnered with the Every Cat Health Foundation, which used to be Win Feline, W-I-N-N, for those folks who, who know them. And so it's an interesting partnership for us. It's Win, uh, Every Cat Health us and the Denver Dumb Friends League, which is a really, really giant, um, well-known animal shelter near us. When we're looking at whether the addition of these cat dens decreases, first of all, stress levels, other measurements of health, but also something that the shelter staff were interested in is they also noted that a stressed cat is more likely to have some behavioral issues, particularly biting and scratching the staff members when they try to go in and work with these with these cats. So we're doing a study where we're placing these. We've recruited a lot of cats already at the shelter. And this study, because of course we're entering, I I don't know if you guys have kitten season in New Zealand, but we tend to see in our springtime and early summer, a lot more young cats and kittens end up in our shelters. These cat dens are now in place. And this study we think will be done within the next four, five, six months. They just have so... um, so many cats coming in right now that they're able to put these put these shelters in. And so they're monitoring parameters of health as well as behavior in, in these cats. This is a shelter that does a lot of behavior assessments in both dogs and cats prior to adoption. They have behaviors on staff. Um, so we're confident they can do a really great job in assessing how these cats, not only their objective measures of health, but their behavior. It's a really simple intervention that could have big implications for cat adoption rates. Um, you know, unfortunately in the United States, even though there's a trend toward no-kill shelters, we still have plenty of shelters that euthanize cats and dogs. And unfortunately we know that cats with behavior issues, right, as well as health problems are less likely to be adopted. They can turn into chronic respiratory cats that um, are ultimately sadly euthanized. And we're really optimistic and excited about this study. It's a little bit different again for us as a foundation. This was a commission study and we did this as a, again, a partnership um, with with these other two organizations. When we were chatting prior to the interview, you mentioned a study that you were involved in, which was looking at the health of support dogs, which were helping, I think you said, particularly veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's an interesting study, this new one that we're doing with the University of Denver. It's looking at the effect of being a support dog for veterans with PTSD on the support dogs themselves. So anyway, this 
this study, we're working, as I mentioned, with the University of Denver School of Social Work, and they're enrolling right now, they're aiming for 50 veterans who have been diagnosed with PTSD and have a support dog. And on the veterans end, they are looking at measures of stress, but they're looking at similar measures of stress in the support dogs that they're assigned. And Morse Animal Foundation is funding that end of the study, which is 250000 American dollars, so not trivial. And they'll be looking at a variety of measures, including some proteomic work, which is different uh, for veterinary medicine. They're working with a company out of Boulder. The same company will be measuring similar proteomics in the veterans themselves. Interestingly, they're looking they're looking to enroll male veterans and because, because it appears that men have slightly different stress markers of stress than women, which is uh, again really interesting. I think a lot of us realize that PTSD doesn't have to affect just veterans. We know that people who have been victims of a violent crime, who have experienced some kind of real upheaval or tragedy in their life can also suffer from PTSD. This will be the first study of its kind. The group at at University of Denver will be expanding. But I think what we're seeing at the foundation in the last few years are several studies aimed at looking at the effect of being a support dog or horse, we're actually doing a study right now and looking at horses as well that participate as support animals. Just what the effect is on these individuals, I think everyone can agree there's lots of literature out there that having a support animal is very important for the well-being and mental health of the people who engage in these activities, but the question remains what the effect is on animals. So we're really excited about this one. It's going to take a couple of years, as you can imagine, between the recruitment phase and following these animals and uh, their human companions for uh, several, at least a year, and then assessing. So we're very excited about that one. And again, it's a little different for more Animal Foundation. Can you give us a a sneak preview of any studies that you've got on the horizon? So some of our new studies uh, that we're very excited about in particular that I want to address are surrounding hemangiosarcoma. I think folks listening know that this is a very serious cancer of dogs. It is particularly devastating. It can strike without warning. It's typically internal. So there's no often no outward manifestations that we might see, for example, with a lump or bump, with a skin tumor, lymphoma, or some of the other cancers we see. It is a disease that we're particularly interested in at the foundation because in our Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, which is at its heart a cancer risk factor study, we are seeing an inordinate number of hemangiosarcoma in our cohort. In fact, it's accounting for 70% of the cancer 
diagnosed in our cohort, which which surprised us. I mean, I think we all realize that golden retrievers seem to have a predisposition toward developing hemangiosarcoma, but we expected lymphoma, to be honest with you, to be the number one cancer that we saw in our cohort. We were not expecting hemangiosarcoma to be quite so prevalent, though again, we we certainly expected it. Because of this, we decided as a foundation to make this a priority for funding. Typically, when we use our or promote our golden retriever lifetime study samples, and that could be biologic samples or data, we'll give that away for free, but we ask the researchers to provide their own funding. In this initiative, we are looking at multi-million dollar, multi-year studies that we will be funding focused on hemangiosarcoma. We are trying to entice researchers to use our Golden Retriever Lifetime study samples by providing finances, but we're accepting proposals from from all different uh, researcher research groups. We're actually also partnering or potentially partnering and accepting proposals from corporate companies. We have several startup companies that are looking at all kinds of things from liquid biopsy to genotyping of tumors, and we may work with them as well. This initiative, we just closed our first round for calls for proposals. We have I think about a million dollars so far that we'll commit to this, but we're, like I said, multi-million dollar is what we're looking at over several years. We will announce the first round of proposals who made it through and accepted for funding probably sometime in July or August. We have our review coming up in June. And what I can see from the outset, as far as looking at the proposals from a high level. Lots of folks, no no um, surprise, are looking at early diagnostic tests. You know, is there a way to look at a dog's blood sample before these things grow? A lot of folks are looking at the genetics of the tumors themselves, some with an eye toward uh, pairing. For example, if you have a genetic a genetic signature in your tumor, what chemotherapy might be optimal. We have folks, again, looking at the genetics of the dogs that get hemangiosarcoma. You know, are there any markers that could be tested for ahead of time that would maybe point to a dog at risk? Anyway, this is a big, big effort for us right now, as you can imagine, and it'll be a push for the foundation for the next few years. If people are interested in your studies or perhaps even are looking for funding for a project that they've got, how do they find you? You can go to our website, which is a really long word, morrisanimalfoundation.org. We have a list of just laundry lists of all the studies that we've got going. If there are people listening who are interested in our grants, we have a grants page now that's just really great. And it has a big calendar on what's coming up, what we'll be looking for, has the grant granting criteria. We fund globally um, and have had funded before in New Zealand. So it doesn't exclude folks who are there from applying for any of our funding. You could also check out 
some of our other funding buckets. We do cats, we do horses, as I mentioned earlier, we've done donkeys, mules, llamas, alpacas, and all manner of wildlife. I think a lot of folks don't know that we do wildlife studies, but we we do as well. And yeah, I would encourage folks to go there. We also have podcasts, blogs, geared toward all levels from veterinarians to veterinary technicians and students to the lay public. We will catch up with Kelly a little bit later to find out more about particularly the hemangiosarcoma study. Now, if you missed that website, it is morrisanimalfoundation.org and search for the Morris Animal Foundation's podcast, which is called Fresh Scoop, wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks once again for listening to the VET podcast. And that's it for another episode of the VET Podcast. All of our links are in one place at beacons.ai slash vetpodcast. That is B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash vetpodcast. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon. Mm-hmm.